Good day everyone and welcome to The Shale Effect Part 2. The information and views conveyed by Energy Intelligence on this call shall not be considered as advice, recommendation, representation, or endorsement and should not be relied on in connection with any business or investment decision. Any use of such information by any person or organization is at such person's or organization's sole risk. And at this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. <coughs> Later, you will have the opportunity to ask questions during the question and answer session. You may register to ask a question at any time by pressing star and one on your touchstone phone, and you may withdraw yourself from the queue by pressing the pound key. Please note this call is being recorded. It's now my pleasure to turn your conference over to Mr. Jim Washer. Please go ahead, sir. Thank you, and welcome everyone to today's Energy Intelligence Virtual Roundtable. My name is Jim Washer, I'm Executive Editor with Energy Intelligence, and it's my pleasure to be your host for today's discussion, The Shale Effect Part 2. Now, the US shale boom has been the biggest story in the oil and gas industry over the past decade, and almost as surprising as the ramp up in output on the back of high prices has been shale's resilience in the face of lower prices over the past couple of years. Shale producers have made their operations leaner and meaner, and have defied predictions from the experts, not least those from OPEC whose attempts to rebalance the market this year have been complicated by the shale rebound. But now, shale is under pressure again. Oil prices have slumped below $50 a barrel, and questions are re-emerging about shale economics. So is this latest price dip going to stop the shale rebound in its tracks, or are we yet again underestimating its resilience? So consider these questions. I'm joined today by two of our experts on the shale sector. In New York, our chief energy economist, Dr. David Knapp, and in Phoenix, the editor of Petroleum Intelligence Weekly, Weekly, Casey Sattler. David and Casey, welcome, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you. So David, let's start with you. Shale has been rebounding. It's helped add more than 700,000 barrels per day to US oil output since the trough we saw last July. And the EIA is looking at average US oil output this year now of 9.3 million barrels a day. So are we returning to the days of adding 1 million barrels a day every year? How much further do you think the rebound has got to go? Good morning, everybody. Thank you, Jim. Uh, yes, indeed. Um, we may return to that million barrels a day for this year, but remember we're coming out of a fairly good slump. Uh, we see December, this is uh, in our, our monthly uh, oil market intelligence, uh, now edited by John von Scheich, um, which I uh, had the pleasure of editing for uh, 17 years, 16 years, something like that. Um, but it's not something that's going to happen every year, that this is indeed phase two, uh, that it's going to be harder to add that kind of quantity uh, that we saw coming out of the box, uh, but it's still going to be a very important and relevant factor for oil markets for some time to come. The other thing that I'd mention is uh, that's a, we're, we're talking about the increases in, in U.S. supply uh, total, um, and so on the one hand, we can't discount the effect that's being seen from the Gulf of Mexico, which is coming out of what we call the Macondo trough, uh, is a significant part of that, but it also includes declining production in mature areas like California and Alaska. So mixing it all together, uh, the U.S. Is, has a, a new role. That role is not going to go away. Uh, Saudi Arabia still matters a lot and will continue to matter, and uh, we'll see how the battle uh, for the market goes in the future. Thank you. Okay. Now, many observers um, expected the oil price slump to wreck the shale boom, but it obviously hasn't quite turned out like that. 
But how has the oil price downturn changed the shale sector? Um, me, I think. Yes. Sure. Yes. Why don't you go first, David? Yeah. Um, well, you know, oil price is obviously important, but the thing to remember on the cost side, uh, which Casey can talk about some of the details in the numerator of that cost, but it's always done in a, on a per barrel basis, just like prices. Um, and so this, what we call the denominator effect, is uh, is very important. Um, and uh, the the problem for the shale producers is that a lot of the easy stuff is now gone. The sweet spots have been tapped. The high grading has gone on in terms of the quality of the resource. And so it gets harder from here uh, to deal with lower prices. But uh, because of the numerator, and I'll pass it on to Casey at this point, um, that it probably is not going to have um, a, an immediate or a, a very deleterious effect if prices stay uh, somewhere between 45 and 55. Yeah, I mean, to, to Jim's point in the intro about it being a leaner, meaner, uh, you know, shale sector, what we have to really understand is that before you had a, an enormous industry that could make returns basically drilling anything and so the focus was on holding acreage and and you know just uh, building out a position as quickly as possible and now as activity is coming on as we've seen the rig count more than double what you are seeing is a very kind of thoughtful holistic approach to development you are seeing um, you know a uh, an effort to um, improve the um, recovery rates through um, a better technology, through you know more sophisticated completion methods. You're seeing a more thoughtful approach to where wells are located and things of that sort. So, what we are seeing is that companies have not just lowered costs and they haven't just benefited from service companies, you know, having to slash their prices, they have also significantly increased the amount of oil that they can get out of each well, and that has a tremendous effect on the economics. Okay, so they've made improvements in volumes. You also talked there about cost savings and efficiency improvements, but there's also another aspect to this economic resilience you see in the shell. Uh, which is hedging. That's also played a role. So, Casey, what's been happening on that front? Yeah, so um, we have to understand that, uh, you know, while the industry has done a tremendous, uh, you know, effort to improve its balance sheet through the downturn, um, it is more uh, tied to its incoming cash flows and to help protect that, uh, the industry was pretty successful at hedging a significant amount of its production this year. Uh, estimates vary, but it's usually considered about half to about 60% of re remaining production through the end of this year is hedged in some fashion. And so what that means is that between that and also the momentum that you see in, in the shale space where you know, wells that are drilled now won't come on production for another four to five months, um, that 2017 production is pretty much locked in even if oil prices are to stay, even at their sub $45 level that we're seeing currently, that, that this year is pretty much written in stone. 2018 is a very different 
story. Uh, the industry is um, quite under-hedged at this point um, in the game, and the futures curve is not very accommodating right now to hedging. Uh, if you look right now, um, producers can't get a price you know, above $50 for another four years out. Um, there's um, not a very steep contango, which is each successive month is a bit of a higher premium than the, than the previous month. Um, and so it, companies are sitting on the high line, sidelines. They can't hedge effectively. And if the curve were to turn into backwardation, which is when it starts going into you know decline, declining prices after each month, then the industry um, just does not hedge in that environment. And so we could see the, 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 the sector really exposed to the current price environment in 2018, um, you know, if, if this continues. Okay, that is an interesting thought. I mean, we have heard a lot of bullish talk about shale over the past few years, uh, and the general mistake has been to underestimate its potential and its resilience, but let's think, um, as you've alluded to there, about possible pitfalls here. I mean, we're in the middle of another shale rebound, but where do the main risks lie for shale producers, David? Well, I think that um, um, the risks are from something happening with uh, with world oil prices, i.e. that the uh, decline that we saw a couple years ago, uh, the downward momentum that, that caused that is uh, would continue. Uh, and to add to Casey's point, um, the idea about the hedging, uh, there's really three points to that, that you're getting less money because of the prices being down. Um, you're uh, you're having a lot fewer people willing to give you that money as well, uh, and you're having to pay more for that money. Um, and those are all uh, current risks, I think, to, to covering it. Uh, one point that I should have made earlier is that the reason why we have, uh, I think, an opportunity for stronger growth in 2017 and 2018 is the drilled but uncompleted wells. So it doesn't require uh, any effort to turn those back on, but those will be turned on uh, based on price expectations as much as where prices are. So um, you put all that together, um, and we're at a, uh, a bit of a crossroads um, that we think that there are enough stronger parties than we have before. That's the other thing that's gone on, is that there's been a transfer of, uh, of assets, uh, what we call the economic Darwinism in the oil patch the last time we talked about this. Uh, people like Exxon and, uh, uh, and Noble and some of the others have, uh, have bought uh, significant as assets in the Permian. Um, and they will do that in a way which is more advantaged by economies of scale than uh, previously. So the financial risk is less than it uh, was before. This isn't a dot-com situation anymore, uh, which I think was a significant risk, and in fact it played out if you look at a number of bankruptcies that happened. Uh, but this transfer of assets has been, uh, as I think, very constructive. Uh, if not for the million-barrel-a-day uh, world uh, every year, uh, at least for a continued uh, significant relevance for shale. Um, so there are pitfalls. It could be slower, uh, but the real risk to it is going away, I think, is uh, is not very high. 
Yeah, and just to, I mean, just to augment what David's saying, so I definitely agree. What you have seen is that you know even if prices were to hit forty dollars or below, the shale sector is not going to collapse. There's not that risk of implosion that you saw. the The entire industry is much stronger, but that doesn't mean that there aren't some significant pitfalls. I mean, to one point is that. You know, there's there's a lot of concern, increasing amount of concern among investors about, you know, where shale goes from here, and that the industry has kind of been too efficient and too effective for its own good. And so, what you have seen is, say, the equity prices of U.S. shale producers have taken a really big hit so far this year, and that has made issuing equity and raising money that way. In effect, you know, ineffective, and so you've seen that really slow down after last year. Uh, while debt markets remain open, you know, there is some concern that uh, if oil prices continue to stay below fifty dollars, that it's going to be more difficult for your high yield borrowers to continue to tap those markets for refinancing and, and such. And so, you know, you have you have some risk that's there in the capital markets, which is a really big issue um, in this kind of capital intensive industry. And another thing is on the service costs. I mean, the expectation is that companies have kind of assumed a 10 to 15% inflation in their budgets this year. But again, there's increasing concern that that's too conservative, that service costs are not correlated to oil prices right now. They're correlated to activity levels and activity levels are continuing to rise. And that, you know, I think as an illustration of this point, you know, Wells Fargo, um, kind of estimated that at a flat $50 oil price, if you had 20% cost inflation, it would reduce your uh, internal rates of return by a third. So, you know, while companies do have a lot of things that they can do um, to to keep themselves efficient and like we talked about earlier about raising, uh, you know, recovery rates and such, there there are risks to to that uh, to the system and you know at at a forty dollar oil price you know you're really not talking about growth anymore even at forty five you're likely to see you know even some rigs come off going into 2018 so it's not you know it's it's in much better shape as David said but in terms of the momentum that it can keep there are risks to the system okay thanks. Um, there's also risks, I guess, here for others in the market with what's happened uh, with shale over, over the last year um, with this rebound. Um, for OPEC, for example, this raises a few questions. Um, it makes rebalancing more challenging, and it's left OPEC with this uh, dilemma over whether further cuts are helpful or simply encourage more shale output. So a, question, a couple of questions here for you, David. Has OPEC really worked out how it's going to coexist with shale? Uh, and is shale now more important oil markets in OPEC? Um, more important than OPEC, I think, is probably a bit of a jump. Uh, as important, I would certainly live with, and I think that that might be what we're hearing from uh, at least the Saudi side on, uh, um, on OPEC, uh, that they want to treat the U.S. shale as a partner, quote-unquote, in meeting the future demand, and the idea that they're, because of the the effectiveness of their initial um, market low price uh, market share uh, strategy, um, what gets sort of lost in all of the short term 
uh, fluffle there is that uh, it worked brilliantly in getting rid of a lot of competitive oil for three to five years from now. Um, and that's a gap that, uh, that Saudi Arabia in particular, but OPEC in general is, uh, is thinking about. And uh, shale um, being there f uh, to help with that is, uh, is considered constructive. Um, and so I think there is a coexistence here. What are they going to do about this? Well, they're letting, in a way, they're letting the market do it. The lower prices do soften the amount of shale growth that you're going to get. It's not going to be the million barrels a day uh, every year. Uh, and so there's an internal dynamic in the market, uh, which is, uh, uh, is maybe more important in some ways than OPEC compliance and uh, the depth of cuts and the length of cuts and things like that. Um, but again, you can't discount them. And besides uh, uh, last night's events in Saudi Arabia and what that might mean for uh, for the Saudi situation, which is absolutely critical to any thinking about oil markets, you still have Venezuela as a possible uh, price enhancer if something goes wrong there. So the dynamics are still out there, but it's it's a market. It is a market. Okay, thanks, David. Um, let's break at this point and see if we have any questions coming from our audience. And at this time, if you'd like to ask a question, please press star and one on your touchtone phone. Star and one on your touchtone phone. We can pause a few moments to allow questions to queue. Okay, um, while we're waiting, let's um, look at something else here. Uh, there's, there's been a, a sense when people talk about the shale phenomenon that it's a homogenous group of plays, but it's actually, of course, it's a mix of very different plays with different economics operated by a wide variety of companies. Um, so, Casey, on that point, which producers and which basins do you think have emerged the strongest from the downturn? Yeah, well, certainly, the, you know, the Permian and Permania that we've we've heard so much about is front and center, and even within that, um, so the. The Permian it consists of two basins. There's the Midland and the Delaware, and the Midland is considered, you know, kind of the cream of the crop in terms of what can be the most economic at, at a low oil price. Although we have seen um, an increasing emergence on the Delaware side of of plays that are working and are effective, and have seen a, a big kind of rush to those areas. Um, you know, Within that, though, I think one of the biggest surprises that we've seen um, in this downturn is is the resilience of the of the Bakken. Um, certainly, it was it was hit at first, and um, but given how mature, relatively speaking, that this play is, and, and how uh, developed its core areas were, the amount of improvement that companies like Continental Resources uh, and Whiting have been able to, to do on the productivity front has really been remarkable and you've seen you know an extension of areas where wells can get you a million you know BOE or more uh, that kind of seemed like that was in the past I you know I say I would say that you know, there's still an issue with companies as a whole um, not necessarily being able to translate of field-level returns to corporate returns, but uh, companies like EOD Resources and Pioneer and Continental are kind of heralded as those that you know, are doing an effective job working within their, their cash flows, actually producing free cash flow, are, are more focused on the return side of things and have, have really kind of 
differentiate themselves a bit from the pack. Well, and just on the, the sort of the geography and the, the, the physical layout, that there is a great deal of heterogeneity, if you want to call it that, um, in, uh, in the shale plays in the U.S. Um, that, uh, for instance, um, the, the Bakken shale isn't shale, uh, just to start with. It's carbonate deposits, so it's, it's got a, a different dynamic in the whole production thing. Uh, and it also sits far away from uh, from any of the major customer bases compared to, say, Eagleford, that if Mother Nature had decided where should I put a shale deposit, that that would be it. They have a very friendly state, friendly local municipalities. They've got a market right next door, both in terms of U.S. refineries and, and export markets. Um, and so logistics is a very important part of it. Uh, the logistics are a little more difficult for the Permian, but the Permian is very much thicker than any of the other plays. So uh, the physical part of it is very different as well. Okay. Um, let's see if we have any questions now from our audience. And there are no uh, questions at this time, but I'll remind uh, our participants it's star and one to ask a question. Okay. Well, let's... Um, just casting that a little more widely here. I mean, we talked almost exclusively about the U.S. Uh, the U.S. does clearly have advantages that have allowed shale to develop in the remarkable way it has there. But what about other parts of the world? Um, Argentina is showing some promise. There's interest in Europe and China, ge geological potential in places like India. Um, so, Casey, how would you assess shale prospects outside the U.S. at the moment? Yeah, so it definitely remains early days for sure. And one of the things that has been kind of learned through this process is that uh, shale is not a shale is not a shale, right? They're they're all they can all be very very different in terms of their geological characteristics and what is needed to produce them. You know, um, you know, kind of the old thinking from a number of the Chinese players was to you know have joint ventures in the U.S. So they could kind of take this technology transfer back home and, and that really didn't didn't quite work as well. Um, but it doesn't mean that there isn't some significant headway being made and Argentina is certainly the, the place where we've seen the most um, kind of traction being gained. You, you have seen companies like Total and, and Chevron uh, start to make investments there in a big way. It has been likened to the Eagleford Shale uh, in the U.S. in terms of its geologic uh, kind of characteristics and its potential. Uh, it's not all oil. There is a lot of gas there as well. And um, Argentina's uh, kind of fiscal structure is trying to support that. Um, so you know, the, biggest, the biggest issue there, and it's something to keep in mind elsewhere, is that it's not just about how productive the rock is, right? It's do you have the oil field services infrastructure in place to support something like shale, which requires you know, ongoing drilling, massive amounts of capital? Do you have the infrastructure to you know, get products to and from these often remote bases? And so that's one of the things that's being worked out in Argentina right now, but you are seeing companies move from you know, pilot to, to development. Um, one of the areas that is probably of most uh, again, of, of significant interest, uh, but is a little bit hamstrung by uh, by Western sanctions right now is Russia. And I don't know, David, did you want to talk about the Bajanov uh, at all in terms of that, that potential? 
Yeah, there was a very interesting study commissioned by the uh, Energy uh, Information Administration that uh, Bella Krushka's group put together um, an assessment of the resource, and it's very clear that shale is a global phenomenon. And in fact, it's not all the U.S. type of, of bitumen-based shales. There's also kerogen-based shale, the stuff that we call uh, oil shale, in, or we used to in, say, Colorado and, and Utah, uh, is kind of a different breed, but also a massive resource. So, uh, and in line with Casey's comment about uh, the Chinese approach to getting involved, uh, and the idea that uh, that some of it is more about gas and oil. That I was in Saudi Arabia three or four years ago, and there were a whole set of uh, of their geologists that had just come back from internships, if you will, with various oil service companies in the shale areas in the U.S. Uh, and Saudi Arabia is looking desperately for mm -hmm. gas. And so that, that's quite important. Um, but the biggest pile of stuff, as Casey mentioned, is what's called the Bazinoff uh, area of uh, western Siberia. Um, <clears throat> we'll see how that develops. The other thing, you know, it happened in the U.S. because of individual property rights, and that got the, mm -hmm. uh, the economic players involved quickly. And we're the only place where that's true. So they're literally there. Uh, so it depends on what the state's view is. And I was in uh, Shanghai uh, two years ago, um, and I asked about, well, isn't the shale working out because we're not hearing much about it? And he said, we don't know. I said, is it not good shale? He said, we don't know. He said, we've got a fairly large pile of conventional gas to uh, get hooked up to our system before we go looking for that. So that's still on a, a sort of down-the-road basis in, in China and has fairly good prospects. So Europe looks like it's probably not going to happen, but the other places there are a lot of options. Okay, thank you. Um, let's just check uh, if we have any questions yet from the audience. And we do have a few questions, and we can go first to Dina Imjarovic. Please go ahead, your line's open. Hi, yeah, just going back to the cost side. Um, you mentioned the service costs uh, could be going up. How much of the cost controls and efficiencies that have taken place over the last years, how many of that how much of that can be sustained uh, going forward, do you think? And like what is the you know estimated break even price going forward for shale? Okay. Uh, maybe that's one uh, Casey can handle the, the, the sort of it the question of, of service costs and obviously this is a pretty huge issue for the uh, industry, lots of savings made during the downturn, that's all very well, how much can they hold on to? So maybe Casey, you'd have some thoughts on that. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, you have to kind of look at it in two buckets a bit. So the industry is, is, is more efficient in how it operates, right? It can drill significantly faster, although there's a point where you actually just need time to drill a well, but you know, those record rates can be sustained. You, the industry is more efficient, and when companies talk about their efficiency gains, it can be about how they are mobilizing their rigs, how they're cutting downtime, how they're placing infrastructure, those kinds of things. So that is sustainable because it's about efficiency through operations, but certainly what you are starting to see is prices for actual services increase, right? And you're certainly seeing this on the completion side, things like sand that you need um, and, and the like. And, um, so it's a matter of companies talk of, companies kind of lump them all together because it sounds nice that they can keep a lot of these savings sustainable, but at some point um, they can't control what 
the cost of services are. And so what break-evens are very uh, kind of a very tricky game, and um, they are highly variable. But you know, something to kind of consider is that um, a number of, of analysts have, you know, kind of said that if you start getting you know, 20% cost inflation this year and next. Um, while that's not unreasonable given the activity levels, you know, you start talking about, well, if something offers nice returns at 50, it suddenly needs a $59 oil price, or, you know, if, if some of the top acreage could break even in the low, you know, low 40s, it's going to need closer to 50. So it does move that dial for sure, um, you know. I, so, what companies are having to try to do the next—not that they haven't been doing this—but the next step, uh, as David mentioned and we discussed a bit, is if they can continue to produce more per dollar spent, then they can keep their break-even costs lower. So, I, I would say the real focus that you're starting to see is. How can we push technology even further? How can we better optimize our wells to produce more so that we can try to keep our economics preserved? And while um, I think it's worth just flagging kind of the, the next step, and this won't necessarily impact economics tomorrow, but it's something that a number of industry players are working on is how do we use you know big data? How do we use analytics to, to further... Uh, drive these recovery rates to further get the most bang for our buck. Um, and if, if some kind of material leap is made on that front, then, you know, we've, we might have to reconsider, again, uh, shale's economics. Stacey, uh, can I make two footnotes on that? The one thing that we haven't mentioned is land costs. Uh, yeah. And land costs were one of the reasons why the initial um, boom in shale uh, devastated some of the uh, the smaller players who just uh, way overpaid for acreage they didn't understand very well and then didn't get very much out of it. Um, and that is starting to heat up again. So, And that's independent of you can't fix that with the de denominator effect very well. So uh, keep your eye on land costs. Uh, the other thing is that with the change in ownership that uh, the bigger players have more market power. If you're dealing with an Exxon rather than some small independent, um, that they can uh, package a deal together with some of the big oil service companies that are doing business with them all over the world, uh, which is much more economic than uh, a small guy coming in that just absolutely needs a rig right now uh, and is willing to pay for it. So uh, monopsony or oligopsony or whatever you want to call it effects are also out there. Uh, there's also been this uh, core acreage concept that's gone on where people have been shedding things that are in areas that they're not as familiar with to concentrate on their, their home turf. Well, the things that they're selling are still pretty good acreage, and they're much cheaper. I've just been looking fairly deeply at New Mexico, and compared to what's going on on the Texas side of the border, the thing that makes that acreage much more interesting isn't so much the geology, but it's rather the land cost. So... Um, that's just a footnote. Okay, thanks. Um, we have another question or two, maybe? Yes, and we can go next to Colin Smith with uh, Pamu uh, Gordon. Please go ahead. Hi, Jim. Hi, David. Hi, Casey. Hi, Colin. Um, hi, Colin. I'm, hi there. I'm just curious, if I, if I look back at the rig counts and the oil price, and obviously there was 
following US oil production before then. There was sort of about a five-month delay from the low in the oil price and the pickup to the rig count really beginning to start to increase. And we've now had just about four months where it's fallen pretty hard back just about that midpoint that it was in sort of May of 2016. And, and in view of the fact we also seem to be looking at lower week-on-week increases in U.S. production than we were seeing at the beginning of the year and the higher service costs that you were, you were referencing, notwithstanding the, uh, the hedging that may be in place, I was just curious as to whether you thought that the rig count might actually start turning negative in the next few weeks. Yeah. All right, Colin's yeah. asking us to look into our crystal ball here, so I don't know if that feels like a clever one. Uh, Casey or David, who wants to take that on? Yeah, well, I mean, a couple things. Yes, I, that certainly is is a concern. I mean, I think what you've seen is that just from the equity side, if you look at where, say, company you know stock prices are trading, it's it's actually anticipating at least a flattening of the rig count if not a fall. So I think that that is the big thing on the radar. So hedging will certainly help, uh, you know, insulate that a bit. But I think uh, one really interesting uh, study that came out just yesterday from Stifle actually tried to kind of calculate that. And so th- their kind of view was that if um, if you're talking about what the industry needs to balance its cash flows uh, at about this you know, say $43, $47 oil price, if you kind of look at the, the, you know, the curve right now through 2018, that you would probably need to see about 60 rigs industry-wide come come off. And if prices were to kind of come more down toward a $40 price and, and stay there, that you would actually see, you would need to see about 200 rigs come off. So, you know, I think... Um, what you will what you will likely see in the immediate term is a, a slowing of additions, right? So a number of companies did provide some ranges on on the, the rigs that they were considering adding, or you know they said, oh, well, we're going to add one every month or every you know quarter kind of thing, so that we can reassess. So I think you will definitely start to see a slowing of those additions, um, but. I, you know, I, but because of hedging, because of contracts and such, I think there will still be a bit of a delay in actually seeing rigs decline with any kind of meaningful amount um, until you know the back half of this year, assuming prices kind of stay where they are. Well, and remember that the link between production and rig count uh, was sort of effectively discounted by the EIA's marvelous drilling productivity report. So you've got the productivity factor. Uh, The other thing is that we have the ducts, which I mentioned earlier, the drilling uncompleted wells. You don't necessarily have to go out and get a rig and start drilling. And in some of these cases, these are really plays on what you think the uh, the shape of the forward curve is or the the shape of the, the prices to come are uh, the opposite <laughs> of the forward curve in some cases, um, that you may be holding that stuff off the market. You may decide, well, maybe I better get that on now. So you'll see mm-hmm. production increases even without rigs. Um, so. Okay, thanks. Uh, yeah, I get that. Uh, I mean, I was certainly, I was slightly under the impression that the increase in ducks was partly related to the lack of um, completion crews and kit available to perform the completion part of the job. Do you think that's right or not? That more expensive, and as things eased off, um, that was less of an issue. 
um, at least in the Texas shales. Uh, but, you know, obviously one of the problems that we didn't mention and one of the pitfalls is that uh, when people left the Bakken, it's going to be tough to get them back. And that's, I think, where you're seeing some of that effect of lack of completion crews and increased costs because of it uh, for, for getting the ducks back on stream. But they are coming back in, uh, in Bakken just somewhat slowly. Uh, the bigger portion of the ducks are in, in Texas. Yeah, you are. I mean, to your point, you are. You get this kind of wave effect, right? Because you 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 absolutely kind of see, uh, you know, the number of crews available start to tap out, and there's a lag. And you know, while new people get hired and new new crews get trained and such, um, and then there's obviously some efficiency loss with that as well. So it does seem, uh, from what I've been hearing, that you are you are getting kind of manned up to be able to handle that load. Um, but I agree with you, it, you get kind of a, a wave effect as the, you know, kind of capacity is, is drained and then you have to kind of take another leg up. Thank you. Appreciate the insights. Okay. I think we have time for just one more question, if there is one there waiting. And it appears we have no other questions at this time. Okay, well, in that case, it just remains for me to thank everyone who's listened in and asked questions, and of course to thank uh, David and Katie for taking time today to discuss uh, the state of the shale sector. Um, our next virtual roundtable takes place next month, so please check our website, www.energyintel.com, for details of the topic and participants, which will be posted shortly. So until then, thank you, goodbye, and see you in July. <laughs>